Well, if you've been a Christian any amount of time, you would probably be fairly familiar with the story of Jesus' trial and crucifixion. I mean, that particular historical event is absolutely central to the Christian faith, is it not? Regardless of whether you are a Protestant, a Catholic, or an Eastern Orthodox, the events of Jesus' trial and crucifixion are central to your faith. Um, In fact, it would be fair to say probably that because Christianity has been so influential in the world, most people in the world probably have some idea that 2,000 years ago, a man called Jesus suffered under a Roman governor called Pontius Pilate, and he died. And, you know, that story is so famous that 14 years ago, Mel Gibson, of all people, uh, made a film about it called The Passion of the Christ. You know, it was a major Hollywood film. It was in the cinemas and everything. Yet, for all our familiarity with the story, I wonder if you've ever paused to ponder on just one detail of that story. Why, oh why, was Jesus given a crown of thorns? You know, if you can turn back to Matthew 27 with me, there in verses 26 to 29, Matthew 27, 26 and 29. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldier of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. You know, this tiny detail of the crown of thorns being placed on the head of Jesus incredibly is so important that three of the four Gospels include this tiny little detail. Matthew here includes it. Uh, Mark does and so does John. So why? You know, what is the significance of the crown of thorns? Now, you know, we read around the context, we're really given two possible reasons for the crown of thorns, aren't we? Firstly, just as we've read in verse 26, you know, Jesus was scourged. What, what does that mean? Now, this is a particular painful Roman punishment where the person being punished is given a severe beating with a multi-lashed whip with bits of bone and metal embedded in it. So not only would you have received fairly serious injuries from the whip itself, the bones and the metal would dig into your skin and your flesh. And as the lashes are administered, it would tear shreds of flesh off the back. You know, there was a reason why the Passion of Christ was rated 80. This scene was so gruesome in the film, I couldn't watch. I had to turn my eyes away. Now, if we've got this scourging in mind as we approach the verse about the crown of thorns, our immediate thought would be that it's simply yet another way 
for the Roman soldier to inflict more pain on Jesus. Now, that's, that's possible. There's no reason to deny it. But it seems to me that if you've just had your body shredded by scourging, a few thorns on your forehead hardly seems like a big deal. And also, if you're a Roman soldier out to torture somebody, surely the idea would be that you're ramping up the pain rather than ramping down. I think what is more likely is that it was a way for which the Roman soldiers to mock and humiliate Jesus further. In the trial before Pilate, Jesus was accused of claiming to be the king of the Jews. We read that earlier. And so giving Jesus a crown of thorns, a scepter of reeds, and putting a scarlet robe on him and kneeling before him is simply a sarcastic mocking of Jesus, is it not? Well, there we go. Mystery solved. We, we can just go home now, can't we? Um, you know, I'm hungry. I'm sure everybody else is hungry. We can just go home and have lunch. Except that there is just one more thing. That's a real Colombo moment there, isn't there? Just, just one more thing. I said earlier that three of the four gospel writers included this seemingly tiny detail, which means that one of them didn't. Luke didn't see fit to include one of thorns. Um, in the Gospel of Luke, he simply says that he was mocked. Jesus was mocked and says nothing whatsoever about the crown of thorns. So clearly it's not a necessary detail to include for the mockery. So why then, we ask again, are we told about this crown of thorns? The answer, I believe, lies in the Old Testament. And we begin in Genesis Firstly, in Genesis 1.26, we're told after God created the whole world, he said this, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. In short, after God created the whole world, he created people. He created Adam and Eve. And then he enthroned them as king over the whole of creation. They were to have dominion over everything on earth. And then in chapter 2 of Genesis, we're told that part of Adam's role as king over all of creation is to obey God. And in the first instance, that simply meant not eating the fruit from a particular tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And shortly after that, in chapter 3, we read of how the serpent, the one who was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had created, entices Eve to eat the forbidden fruit. And after eating the fruit, Eve also gave some to her husband who was with her, and Adam ate the fruit also. And then in um, verses 17 to 18, we're told of the consequences of this rebellion. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. And this is the important bit. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plant of the field. Not only is the ground cursed, you know, what we're told for their rebellion, God had to cast Adam and Eve out from the Garden of Eden, the perfect garden that God placed them in, where God walked with them. 
In short, a second part of their judgment was that they were cast out of God's presence. So, just putting all of that together then, what do we have here? We have the king of the world, Adam, who didn't obey God's word because he ate the fruit. Instead, he obeyed someone else, his wife, and the serpent. As a result, judgment comes through him to all the earth, signified by the thorns and thistles growing in the ground. And people are cast out of God's presence as part of that judgment. Now, we turn to Isaiah 7, 11 to 25, which we read earlier. Now, if you've been tracking with me so far, and as you think back to when we read this passage earlier, perhaps three verses would have stood out particularly for you. Verses 23 to 25, if you can all turn with me again to Isaiah 7, 23 to 25. And in that day, every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. With bow and arrows, a man will come there, for all the land will be briars and thorns. And as for all the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns, for they will become a place where cattle are let loose and where sheep tread. So again, we have here a mention of thorns, and this time with briars. But it's the same idea. You know, as we read through the passage earlier, it was clear that the thorns and the briars or thistles are a sign of God's judgment. But the question is, what's the judgment for? And actually, again here, we have the judgment for the sins of a king. This time, the king Ahaz, who was king over Judah, He was the king over the southern kingdom of the Israelites in the 8th century. We're told in earlier parts of the chapter that two of the neighboring nations, Syria and Ephraim, have joined forces and are planning an attack on Judah. Ahaz was understandably concerned, and we're told in 2 Kings 16 that rather than trusting that God, the Lord, Yahweh himself, will be his strength and salvation, Ahaz instead sought to form an alliance with Assyria to protect himself from Syria and Ephraim. And God, we're told in the earlier part of chapter 7, graciously sends Isaiah to speak his promises, his words to Ahaz, words of comfort and encouragement to trust in the Lord. And not only that, through Isaiah, we read this earlier, God offers Ahaz additional grace. From verse 10 of chapter 7, God offers him not just a verbal promise, but he offers to give him a physical sign as a promise that if Ahaz was to put his trust in God, God will protect him. And he could have asked for anything, anything from the depth of Sheol to the height of heaven, anything in the world. But bizarrely, what was his reply? We see there in verse 12, I will not ask and I will not put the law to the test. Ahaz there was quoting from Deuteronomy 6.16, that you should not test the Lord. So bizarrely, not only does he reject God's word, he rejects God's gracious offer of giving him a sign. He uses, and, and he uses God's own word to do so. 
He thinks he's being pious. He thinks he's being religious. He thinks he's being faithful to God. But all the while, what we actually see is a profound lack of trust in God, who he is and his graciousness. And so rather than trusting in God and his word, we see Ahaz rejecting God's trustworthy promises. And from other parts of scripture, we know that instead he opts to form an alliance before a nation, the Assyrians. But despite this rejection from Ahaz, God offers him a sign nonetheless. We see that, don't we? In the miraculous sign of a virgin giving birth to a child in the line of David, he will be the Davidic king, the one who's called Emmanuel, a sign that God will be with him. However, this does not mean that Ahaz and the people of Israel are free from judgment for their sins of not trusting in God. What we see in verses 17 to 25 is that God will raise up Assyria and far from acting as a help and protector for the kingdom of Judah, Assyria will actually overrun Judah and the civilization that has been built up by the people of Judah will be destroyed. Their lands will become desolate. Ironically, those whom God's unfaithful people ran to for help becomes God's agent in their judgment. And their land will turn from a fruitful vineyard worth thousands of shekels of silver to worthless thorns and briars. And what we have here in Isaiah 7 is effectively a repetition of what we had in Genesis 3. The king rejects God's word. And instead of putting his trust in God and his word, he puts his trust in something else. And then thorns and thistles, or briars in this case, becomes the picture of God's judgment on God's people. But then there's also a subtle difference of what we have here in Isaiah 7 to Genesis 3. Whereas in Genesis 3, the result of God's judgment is that he drives his people out from his presence Here we have God's gracious giving of a child, somebody called Emmanuel, somebody called God with us. And so here, rather than driving his people out from his presence, he promises to be with his people, even in the time of their judgment. Is that not extraordinary grace? Now, we've seen in the Old Testament that thorns and thistles or briars are a sign of God's judgment on God's people um, and the kings who refuse to put trust in God's word but trust in something else. So let's now go back and let's see if, we, if that enriches our understanding of the crown of thorns placed on Jesus' head. Now, to do this, I'm going to take a bit of dramatic license. And, and so what I want to do I want you guys to imagine that you are um, Old Testament saints. You're Old Testament Israelites. You've passed away. You're in heaven. And you're looking down on the scene of what's about to unfold. Now, yeah, if it helps you, imagine that you're Isaiah. So imagine you're Isaiah. You spent your entire life in ministry preaching the word of God. However, God's people don't listen. Just like Ahaz, their response to God's word is stubborn, unrepentant, hard-heartedness. You die heartbroken by the plight of God's people. 
and you look on from heaven and you see God's people remain hard-hearted and unrepentant throughout history, there are a few glimpses of hope, possible improvements, but each time your hope is dashed. Israel descends from this mighty kingdom that was established from, by David and Solomon to a mere pawn in the hands of the mighty empires that arose over the next 700 years. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Greeks and the Romans. Things are so dire in the land of Israel that God hasn't spoken directly to the Israelites for 300 years. And there in heaven you hear a rumbling amongst the rank of the angels, a murmuring amongst the other faithful people who are with you in heaven. You hear that God is finally going to break his silence. He's finally going to reveal himself again. And this time, he's not just going to speak his word to his people. No, this time, his word will go to his people embodied. This time, His word will become flesh and live amongst his people. And you look on with interest. You see God working miraculously in the life of a virgin, a young woman called Mary. She conceives a child who is called Emmanuel, God with us. You see God's angel going to her and her soon-to-be husband Joseph and telling them that this is all to fulfill the prophecies in Isaiah, just as we've read. Now imagine you're at this point. You're practically giddy with glee, knowing that this child is the Davidic king who is going to come and fulfill all the prophecies you've given. And he is the one who is God's sign that he will be with his people and that he will be their strength and their salvation. And Zion, the the glorious Jerusalem, will finally be restored. Jerusalem will regain its previous glory back to the Davidic and Solomon days. And God's rule over the whole world will finally be established. And for the next 30 years, you, you look on as the child grows in stature, knowledge, and wisdom. Until one day, he finally begins his public ministry. He goes around the whole of Israel, preaching, teaching, healing people, casting out demons. In fact, he, he shows himself to be so powerful that he's able to calm a storm with just a word. You see him gathering disciples. He's becoming better known. He is gaining popularity. He's so popular that 5,000 people gather to hear him preach. And not only that, you see him able to feed those 5,000 people until they're full, over abundance in provision for them. You have the beginning of an army amongst the Israelites. You look on, and eventually you see Jesus riding on a donkey into Jerusalem, the sign of a kingly entrance into his capital city. You see people welcoming him into Jerusalem with branches and laying down their clothes, meaning that it's not just Jesus being presumptuous and pretending to be a king. What we're seeing here is that people are beginning to see him as king. Surely this is the time that Jesus will raise up an army from God's people and overthrow the Roman oppressors. Yet this never happens. 
Instead, you see Jesus betrayed by one of his disciples. You see Jesus arrested and put on trial, first before the Jewish religious council and then the Roman governor. And yet no one is able to find him guilty of any crime. You let out a sigh of relief, thinking that they'll have to let him go and he'll be free to fight another day. But that's not what happens. You see God's people hard-heartedly condemning an innocent man to death. In fact, they would rather free a criminal than free Jesus. They would rather free Barabbas than free Jesus. You again begin to despair God's people. But this despair doesn't last too long, as you remember that Jesus is God's son. If he wanted to, he can call down a legion of angels and destroy the Roman Empire and all the unfaithful people that asked for his execution. In fact, you become increasingly sure that that's exactly what's going to happen. But this never comes. Instead, you see Jesus dragged out before the Roman soldiers. And then you see one of them holding a multi-lashed whip with bits of bones and metal embedded in it. You see them strip Jesus down to the waist. And you start thinking, surely, surely if he is going to call down a legion of angels, this would be the time. This would be the time to do that. And yet the call never comes. You watch as the whip tears stripes of flesh out of his body. The scene is so gruesome, you have to turn your eyes away. But suddenly, you remember what the prophecy said. By his stripes, we'll be healed. And finally, you understand what that meant. And just whilst you're marveling at your newfound understanding of those words, you realize that the beating has stopped. The soldiers have taken him back into the governor's headquarters, and an entire battalion of soldiers now stand before him. And you think to him, you think to yourself, what can they possibly be planning now? How can anything be worse than what you just witnessed? You see the soldiers strip Jesus naked again and put a robe on him. You see them twist together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. You see them put a reed in his right hand as his kingly scepter and you see them mock him bowing down to him, calling him the king of the Jews. And all you can do is shout out in heaven, do you not see? Do you not understand? He is the king of the Jews. This is ridiculous. What is this mockery? He's not just the king of the Jews. He's the king of the whole world. How can you be doing this to him? And then you pause and you realize what you just witnessed. You have just witnessed the coronation of Emmanuel. You have just watched Jesus become king. You have watched Jesus his entire life. You know that he is the faithful king that never did anything wrong. He never trusted in anything else other than God's words. Here is the king who does not deserve God's judgment. Thorns and thistles and briars shouldn't be anywhere near this king. 
And yet, what do we see here? We see the thorns placed upon his head. Do you know what you've just witnessed? Whereas King Adam's lack of trust led to God's presence departing from God's people. And though the faithlessness of King Ahaz would have deserved the same, but instead we see God's gracious presence with his people even through their judgment. Here we have the full fruition of God's grace. Not only is he present with his people in judgment, he takes their judgment upon himself. But not only that, it's not just that he takes the judgment upon himself. Notice where and how he takes that on. He takes on judgment as a crown. In other words, our judgment has become his glory. Our judgment has become his glory. And that is the true meaning of the crown of thorns that is placed upon Jesus. Although, humanly speaking, the soldiers meant it as a way of humiliating and shaming Jesus, from God's perspective, it becomes a way of glorifying his own son. God works in these strange ways that we cannot simply, we simply cannot comprehend. But that's amazing, isn't it? That he does this. So as we finish, there's just a few things that we really do need to think about. Um, I I wonder, as we went through um, these three figures, Adam, Ahaz, and, and, and Jesus, who did you most identify with? Who do you think you follow? Effectively, who is your king today? Are you like Adam? Do you trust in anything else but God's word? Do you have a total disregard for God's grace to you? In which case, what the Bible tells us is that you would be the bearer of God's judgment. And that judgment will be so severe that one day it would mean that you were cast out from God's presence. Or maybe you identify with King Jesus. You know, you, you know who he is. You have come to trust in him for your salvation. You know that your judgment is on his head. It is the one that he, it is, it is your judgment that he wears as a crown. In which case, what does that mean for you? Well, I think it really takes a load off of how we think we glorify God. I mean, Christian life is so busy, isn't it? We have so much to do. There's always more to do. There's always more to read. There is always people to share the gospel with. There are always missionaries to to support, to pray for. Um, And we we, we think that by doing all these things, we can glorify God. And, you know, there is a way in which we can. That's true. But actually, simply by putting your trust in Christ, simply by having him wear your judgment as his crown, you have already glorified him. 
He is already glorified because of that. That means that, yes, we, we, we try our best. We, we do things for Christ. But we do so with the recognition, with the understanding that the, he has already been utmost glorified by what he did. What we do for him is pales into insignificance. And I think that there's also a bit of a niche um, application um, for anybody who sort of identify with Ahaz. He, that, that was a really interesting one, wasn't it? He, he clearly had some understanding of God's word. He clearly um, thought he was being religious and pious. Um, he, he knew God's word well enough to quote it, and yet he refuses to trust him. I wonder if you feel like that. I wonder if you think like that. And we, we see a similar picture to, to Adam, don't we? That you would bear God's judgment when, when you think of those things. But what you need to do then is to move towards, away from Ahaz to King Jesus. Have your judgment placed on Christ so that you will have to face it. And the thing is, this kind of plays out practically in a few ways. One of which might be that, um, you know, you, you, you've come to some kind of understanding of, of Christianity and what Jesus has done for you, but you feel like you're not good enough to be a Christian. And I want to say to you, hear God's word today, hear his promise to you today, that if you place your entire trust on him and have Jesus take your judgment rather than bearing it upon yourself, he promises that that's where it is. And so you can firmly lean on that. Or maybe you're somebody who really do understand that. But for whatever reason, you, you feel like you, you just don't know if you're saved. You're looking for different signs. You're looking for um, some kind of emotional experience that tells you that you're saved. Um, you know, we have some we have some friends. Julia and I have some friends um, who come from a Dutch reform background, um, and her, her parents, our friends' parents, are really strict Dutch reform people. Um, and I, I don't know if this is true across the board for for Dutch reform churches, but it's certainly true for for their church that um, most people would think they're Christians or would think that. You know, they, they believe in Jesus, they believe that he died and, 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 you know, for people's sins. But because of their understanding of how certain doctrines work, they start thinking that it's presumptuous for anybody to assume that they're saved. And so actually a lot of people don't, you know, they, they kind of have this idea of God and they know loads about scripture. But none of them knows that they're saved. And one of the ways that cashes out is that nobody then takes the Lord's Supper. Like, you know, maybe at, at a church as big as this, maybe two people will, will take the Lord's Supper. And the thing is, the Lord's Supper, just as God has given um, to Ahaz a sign, a physical sign, God has given us the Lord's Supper 
as a physical sign of his real presence with us. And so when we come to take the Lord's Supper, you know, may, maybe you're like the, 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 the brothers in, in the Dutch Reformed churches who feel like you can't. Well, please know that the assurance is there for you that you can take the Lord's Supper. Come into membership, talk to Andy, talk to the elders, help, let, let him help you figure it all out. Um, and then take the Lord's Supper and be spiritually fed by the real presence of Jesus Christ. But also for the rest of us, as we come to take the Lord's Supper, how do we come to take it? Do we come to take it in a flippant way? Oh, you know, it's just a bit of bread, it's just a bit of wine. Or do we come knowing precisely that as we come to the table, as the bread is being passed out, as the wine is being drunk, that we are genuinely participating in the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus. So as we leave today, I want you to think about one thing throughout the week. Think about this. The judgment that you deserve, if you're a Christian, is born by Christ. But not only that, it's his glory. Leave with that thought. And may it feed you for the rest of the week. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this beautiful picture of the glorified Christ who is at the same time humiliated. Um, it's impossible for us to understand your, all your ways, Lord. Um, and yet we marvel at your strange work. We marvel at the fact that you do things so unexpectedly and in times of what looks like absolute defeat, it is in fact your glory. Lord God, we pray that we would always have this in mind and that you would help us to seek your will um, even when things are hard. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.